The primary purpose of any nation's military force is to fight and win its wars. However, the military instrument of national power does much more than that. Most of those things keep the nation from having to fight wars. The non-conflict role of the military instrument is the subject of this episode of The Ancient Art of Modern Warfare. Hi, I'm Chris Mayer, retired U.S. Army Colonel and former instructor for the U.S. Army Command and General Staff College and the Naval War College. I believe that everyone can and should understand the unchanging substance of war and distinguish it from its particular adaptations due to ever-changing circumstances. This podcast series is for everyone, so I try to avoid military jargon and I absolutely avoid politics. If war is socially sanctioned violence to achieve a political purpose, then everyone in that society should have a basic understanding of what war is so that we as citizens can make better decisions about what we should tell our political leaders to do about it. That is my purpose in these podcasts. Now, if you think this material is worthwhile, please hit the like button, leave a comment, or share it with someone. In the last episode, I talked about Russia's use of mercenaries in its war with Ukraine. If you haven't listened to it, that's episode 54 of The Ancient Art of Modern Warfare. For more information on that subject, check out the episodes I list in the show notes. I particularly recommend episode 2 titled, Who Are These Russian Mercenaries? Today I'm going to conclude my description of the military instrument of national power by looking at ways the military supports national strategy without actually going to war. Once again, I'll use Ukraine as an example. We should all be thankful that our armed forces rarely fight in combat. For example, I was in the Army for 30 years from 1979 to 2009. Note that after that I spent another 10 years in the Pentagon as Defense Department civilian, doing much the same thing I did in my last couple of years in uniform. Anyway, of those 30 years, I was in two wars, the First and Second Gulf Wars, and altogether I spent less than two years in combat. Even during the last 20 years, only a small part of our armed forces were deployed to Iraq or Afghanistan at any one time. That said, the operational tempo of rotating troops into and out of the combat theater over two decades was exceptionally stressful and actually eroded our ability to conduct prompt and sustained warfighting. That may seem strange to hear that actual experience fighting wars interferes with our ability to fight wars. It's true, but it's a subject for another episode. So, you might ask, if our military spends so little time in its primary purpose, why do we need a standing army, or an air force, or a navy, or now a space force, the rest of the time? Couldn't we just have all our armed forces in the reserves and call them up when we think we're going to war? To answer that question, we need to understand what military forces do to support our national strategy when they are not fighting. There are three main functions performed by the military instrument of national power. The primary role, as I've already mentioned, of course, is to fight and win the nation's wars, and I'll come back to that later. The other functions are to deter war and perform other non-conflict activities. It has been said that every military operation is, by its nature, a failure. I think that's fundamentally true. Under just war principles in our own national policy, war is a last resort, undertaken only when we are compelled to do so, only when the use of the other instruments of national power have failed. Far better than fighting a war is to deter war, whether directed against the United States itself or when directed against other nations consistent with our vital national interests. 
Deterrence requires possessing and credibly conveying the capability and will to use force in sufficient strength to convince an opponent that its use of force is likely to fail or will cost far more than any perceived gain from going to war. This deterrence is the purpose of our strategic nuclear capability. Even should an opponent think that it could win a nuclear strike against the United States, the price that the opponent would pay will far exceed any perceived benefit. Deterrence, however, is not limited to that strategic threat. There are other conventional means of deterrence. These include presence, show of force, and security cooperation. Our forward deployed forces in Germany during the Cold War included both presence and show of force. The hundreds of thousands of troops, planes, tanks, and artillery in Europe both reassured our allies and forced the Soviet Union to calculate whether it had sufficient force to defeat the U.S. military presence and those of our NATO allies. At the lower end, presence could be a single ship, a strategic bomber flight, or a small detachment of soldiers or marines in an area of increased risk. That small U.S. military presence is not enough to be a significant threat to a potential aggressor, but it is enough to warn that, if attacked, the United States would respond with overwhelming force. Show of force significantly increases the strength of military force near a trouble spot to further deter potential aggression. The annual reforger exercises in Germany demonstrated the ability of the United States to quickly reinforce Germany, hopefully faster than any potential Soviet force could mobilize and initiate combat operations in that country. In Central and Eastern Europe today, we can see both presence and show of force to deter Russia from escalating its war with Ukraine and any potential widening of the conflict to NATO member states. It also, of course, reassures our allies that the United States will live up to its commitments and defeat any potential aggression quickly. The United States is not alone in using deterrence and show of force. Our NATO allies have troops in Poland, Romania, and the Baltic states and perform combat air patrols along the NATO borders with Ukraine and Russia. Finland also mobilized and forward positioned its own troops in its territory. Outside of crises, other countries routinely call up reserves for training or exercises alongside of their active military forces, demonstrating the ability to rapidly generate force to oppose any potential aggression. In Switzerland, for example, the railway stations are filled every weekend with Swiss reservists deploying to and returning from weekend training. It is also well known that Swiss and Austrian reservists maintain their full combat kits in their homes, including weapons and ammunition, ready for rapid response to any crisis. Another way to deter potential aggressors is through security force assistance. The purpose of this use of the military instrument of power is to increase the military capability of friendly countries to deter an attack on that friendly country. An example of this was the U.S. and NATO support to Ukraine between 2015 and February of this year. After Russia invaded Ukraine in 2014 and 2015, we had a vital national interest in responding to that aggression, even though we had no formal treaty with Ukraine. That's because in 1994, in return for Ukraine surrendering its Soviet-era nuclear weapons, the United States and the United Kingdom gave Ukraine security assurances of its territorial integrity. Living up to such agreements is a vital national interest. The Russian attacks triggered that agreement. Second, the excuse Russia gave for its invasion of Ukraine could apply to other countries in the area, including NATO members. In fact, Putin even indicated he would do just that. So, it was in our best interest to provide Ukraine with the security assistance to deter a Russian attack. Unfortunately, 
deterrence failed, partly at least because Putin failed to consider the cost-benefit of attacking a reformed, re-equipped, and retrained Ukrainian military. We need to continue to fulfill our security assurance to Ukraine to keep Russia from being able to attack or coerce other countries, including NATO members. There is also the moral imperative of aiding a country that is defending itself against an unjust attack. Military assistance to Ukraine, therefore, continues, but without direct military confrontation. For now. Hopefully, Putin will do a better job of cost-benefit analysis before any further escalation of his aggression. The capabilities of the military instrument can also be applied in non-conflict situations. This includes military support to civil authorities, such as disaster assistance and humanitarian relief. The U.S. National Guard has particular expertise in this role and unique competencies to perform such missions within the United States. Peacekeeping operations is another role that makes use of unique military capabilities. In establishing the first U.N. peacekeeping mission, then-U.N. Secretary General Dag Hammarskjöld said that peacekeeping is not a job for soldiers, but only soldiers can do it. Although I served in this capacity, the United States is really a minor player in this role. Other countries, including Bangladesh, India, France, Ireland, and Pakistan, are key players in this mission. Preparing to fight is another non-conflict activity. Publius Flavius Vegetius Renatus, the first Christian Roman general, wrote, Siwis pacem parabellum. If you want peace, prepare for war. Fighting and winning our nation's wars, as well as effective deterrence, requires considerable commitment of time, manpower, and money before war, in parabellum. For example, you might be able to produce a competent private in four to six months. It takes four to six years to make a competent junior officer or non-commissioned officer, and decades to make a competent general or sergeant major. That requires that they have the proper equipment, and that takes a similar amount of time to design, test, build, and field. So even if you only want to use the military instrument to defend your country in time of war, the non-conflict tasks of recruitment, training, and technology development must be addressed. How much of that force must be in the active standing armed forces, and how much can be in the reserves, like the Swiss and Austrian models, is a matter of prioritization, debate, and perceived national needs. The experience of the American Army is that it takes about four months to mobilize a division of 16,000 reserve soldiers and deploy them to war. Training that division, however, requires another 26,000 soldiers to do the training, equipping, and preparation for onward movement. Then you have to consider the effect of taking these people out of the economy and away from their families for military duties. In summary, the military does many things necessary for the security of our nation other than fight in wars. Some of those things are necessary so we can fight and win. Other things are intended to avoid the necessity of fighting at all. The danger is when political leaders see armed forces who are not fighting and look for something to do with them. If you like these podcasts or find them at all interesting, please hit like or send a comment. This will help assure that more people will have these podcasts suggested to them. Of course, likes and comments also let me know that you think this meets an interest of yours or what I can do better. So please hit the like button and join me next time on The Ancient Art of Modern Warfare.